0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1478. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, social media is a pit of misinformation when it comes to the subject of guns, so what you need is my free ebook. Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Guns. Smashes all the myths and a lot of fun to read. Pick it up at wrongaboutguns.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here by myself today talking a little bit about this 1619 project launched by the New York Times recently. 1619, of course, is the date in which slavery is introduced into what becomes the United States and the claim being made here is that we need to look back on that, it being 2019, 400 years later, as being the foundational moment in American history because so much of what – in fact, there was a tweet from a New York Times writer saying that we're going to be running a series of essays arguing that pretty much everything that we've thought of as making America great has its origins in slavery. So I want to say a little something about that and some – Very good libertarian scholars have already started to take this on. Now, predictably enough, there are some libertarians, not that many, thank heavens, who immediately latched onto this idea and wanted to go after anybody who was skeptical. And thank goodness our friend Phil Magnus is able to hold his own because when the the career destroyers and the smearers and the regime mouthpieces in the libertarian movement went after him, Ah, uh, he just immediately fired back. Well, I've actually written scholarly work on this, and then they they cowered, you know, like uh, Dracula before a crucifix. Right? This, you know, this is the, the, they just wanted to throw some talking points at him and 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 hurt his reputation, and he just came back with, "But I actually know the scholarly literature on this." And then suddenly it became, "Oh well, huh, 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 yeah, that's pretty good." Huh, huh, huh. <laughs> so it's funny. To, it's funny when the good guys you know as almost inevitably happens have the mastery of the relevant literature and the the midwits who occupy the official precincts of the libertarian movement have to go uh, scurrying to their little rat holes where they where they reside so i'm going to share with you some some thoughts that um, you can find elaborated on on the show notes page tomwoods.com/1478 in some links that i'll have available for you so at the end of our little discussion today i'm going to talk about the claim that slavery was an efficient system just theoretically and whether that's really true whether that, and whether that's been shown to be true empirically, whether it makes sense theoretically or not, we'll get to that. Uh, first, I want to just deal with the way some of these scholars have done their work. Now, I noticed in some of the reading that I've been doing lately the frequent use of the, the old expression, the peculiar institution to refer to slavery. And I just want my listeners to be aware of an error that it's very easy to fall into about that. Just so you know, if you've seen that expression, the peculiar institution to refer to slavery, understand that they mean the word peculiar, not in the sense of unusual or strange, but rather in the perhaps more archaic sense of the word peculiar as meaning peculiar to a particular place. So in the 19th century, we would have called slavery the peculiar institution because it was peculiar to the South. It was confined to the South. It was a characteristic of the South. So in the 17th and 18th centuries, we would not have called slavery the peculiar institution because at that time it was much more widespread throughout, all the, the, throughout the colonies or throughout the states. So just so you know, that's what that expression means and does not mean, and that's an error that I see a lot of people making. Uh, Anyway, I had uh, the loser brigade come after me. This is a a term I use to refer to several social media left-wing libertarians. And by left-wing, I just mean their, their view of the left is that they may be a bit misguided in their methods, but their hearts are in the right place and their aims and goals and their visions of society are all good. And the people we should be attacking really are the you know whatever the 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 seventeen people on the right wing who are extremists or something because they're they're the ones we're really in danger from, even though the left dominates every aspect of society. Yes, it's true they don't currently have the White House, but even there there's you know this is hardly a an extreme right wing regime when you look at its overall policy thrust the the left dominates academia the media culture um the educational establishment even below the universities, uh, entertainment, it's just absolutely dominant everywhere, even corporate boards, CEOs. uh, Nobody dares to say anything against the progressive juggernaut. If one person does, if one person does, that person becomes an instant celebrity. And yet they're terrified of of what? A scattered group of right-wingers with no foundational support and no money, no popular support almost all of whom are losers in their personal lives, that's what they're worried about. It's just crazy to me that anybody could think this way. So I call these people the loser brigade because they have accomplished nothing. They do nothing. They create nothing. All they do is try to destroy the reputations of people who have accomplished things and have have done things for libertarianism. So they went after me and said, the reason I'm against the 1619 Project is that I'm a racist. Well, what did, did you see that coming, folks? Did you? Could you have predicted that? And the interesting thing about the, the loser brigade is that they're not funny at all. I mean, you could have come after me on Twitter in a way that was funny, you know, and edgy, and I would have at least appreciated it. They're so utterly unfunny. That's another thing they have in common with the left. The left has no sense of humor whatsoever. You know that. That nothing is funny because, you know, we're in a society full of injustice. How can you laugh, citizen? I mean, oh my gosh. How anyone can stand to be around people like this, I don't know. And thankfully, my livelihood does not rely on being around them or getting their approval or whatever. None of it. I get to um, have a nice life thanks to you good listeners. All right, well, anyway, what a lot of this revolves around is a school of historical thought uh, that is loosely termed the new history of capitalism. And it's really arisen more or less over the past decade and really, really – Uh, in the years following the financial crisis, which, of course, no doubt the new historians of capitalism attribute to capitalism. And it's from these people that the Times is largely deriving its claims, and particularly its economic claims, about the size of the slave economy's contribution to American prosperity. And it is fascinating that the left has now positioned itself – as people who are going to claim that slave labor is efficient, slave labor is enviable, slave labor drives economies, slave labor accounts for industrial success. I mean, I, it is astonishing that of all people, the left would be trying to make a claim like this. I mean, you would think that the left, if they believe anything identifiably leftist anymore, uh, at least in this area – you would think they would agree with libertarians that no slavery is a blight on a country it is a bad thing not just morally but in every way whereas they're basically arguing that yes of course slavery is a moral abomination but you know hey it makes the economy run that's a that is shocking to me that they're so anti-capitalist that what they have to do now is claim that number 1 slavery and capitalism are indistinguishable or are inseparable, let's say. They're inextricably intertwined. And that slavery is the driving force of capitalism. And it's the driving force of economic growth. That's just amazing to me that they would want to make a claim like that. That's a shocking and frightening claim. It's not a million miles removed from their claim that war also creates prosperity and economic growth. That's another matter. Um, If you haven't heard that one, smashed. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash uh, 1478. I'll, I'll link to an episode I did on that, War and Prosperity, just writing that down so I don't forget. What's interesting about this new history of capitalism group of historians is that they can't agree on – not only can they not agree on a definition of capitalism, but they think it's a bad thing even to try. And I'll quote a couple of them for you in just a minute. They can't come up with a definition of capitalism, but they don't even think it's worth trying. At the same time, they say slavery is foundational to capitalism. So, slavery is foundational to something that we don't even know what it is. It's foundational to a system we can't and won't define for you. But we do know slavery is foundational to it. So, right off the bat, why would you listen to people like this? This is incoherent. The New York Times is going to spin a series of essays based on, of all people, these people. Would you want to rely on these people for anything? So, for example, and Remember, I'm going to have links up. Uh, This article that um, I've really benefited from by Phil Magnus will also be linked as one of the resources that um, I'm drawing from. But Seth Rockman is one of these new historians of capitalism. And he says that it, quote, has minimal investment in a fixed or theoretical definition of capitalism. Imagine that. Imagine any field where you're talking about anything where you think it's a virtue that you won't define that thing. I mean, try to imagine that. And then you've got a major American newspaper thinking, now these sure sound like some super folks. I mean, imagine that. Imagine what's going on in those brains there. You know, this is not normal behavior. And then he says that we're letting the term, quote, float as a placeholder. What could that even mean? What does that mean? I mean, it's like we're we're in a we're in an insane asylum here. In the Journal of American History, Lewis Hyman says simply defining capitalism is a bad idea. It is too deductive. <laughs> okay. Well, I think the reason it's a bad idea is that if you don't ever define it, it's very hard to get criticized for your commentary on it. Because nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. Because you won't tell us what you're talking about. So it becomes possible to blame capitalism for everything. And then we can come along and say, well, on what grounds could you possibly say such and such is capitalism? I, I, I've seen an article where they, they talk about protective tariffs in the 19th century as being part of the laissez-faire system. What could that possibly mean? Laissez-faire involves the free movement of goods. Protective tariffs inhibit the free movement of goods. How could you be so blinded by hate as to think those are the same thing, or one is part of the other. But again, we'll and we'll see in the case of this Rockman fellow, he is all in favor of uh, what he calls the disavowal of theoretical definitions of capitalism. But then, in that very same sentence, he says that the new historians of capitalism have shown, quote, slavery as integral rather than oppositional to capitalism. So he can't tell us anything about what capitalism is, refuses to, but yet he is absolutely confident that slavery is integral to it. Now, one of the key claims of the new history of capitalism is the driving force of slavery as an engine of economic growth. And to this day, we have people even today arguing this about China, that we should fear China because we all know that they use slave labor – And the implication being that everybody knows slave labor is really where innovation comes from. You know, we all know you can't possibly compete with slave labor. I mean, that's what conservatives, a lot of them, are saying about China. They have slave labor, and how am I going to compete with slave labor? Yeah, how could you ever compete with slave labor? That's your question? So we'll get to that at the end. Here's a little preview. Imagine we enslaved everybody tomorrow, okay? We enslaved everybody in the U.S., except— I don't know, we'll have like 10 people who are not enslaved and they'll tell everybody else what to do. But everybody's enslaved. Are you saying we become richer? You think that's a richer society when everybody's enslaved? And just try and think that through. Does that become richer? Do we become the the envy of the world in our economic progress? Okay, try and think of why that might not be the case. You see what I mean? Just a simple thought experiment like that is all you need to do for this. What Magnus points out is especially funny about all this is that apologists for slavery in the 19th century made pretty much the same arguments that these left-wing new historians of slavery are making. They made the same argument. They sound like they're – these new historians of slavery couldn't have happened to a more deserving bunch. They've accidentally repeated propaganda from the slave-owning class of the 19th century. You know, They've accidentally <laughs> you know, fallen ass-backwards into that. So here's what, um, here's what we read in a tract from 1856. And with the exceptions of the, the tone, let's say, and maybe some of the terminology, this could have been written by a present-day left-wing historian, a so-called new historian of capitalism. Slavery is not an isolated system but is so mingled with the business of the world – ...that it derives facilities from the most innocent transactions. Capital and labor in Europe and America are largely employed in the manufacture of cotton. These goods, to a great extent, may be seen freighting every vessel from Christian nations... ...that traverses the seas of the globe... ...and filling the warehouses and shelves of the merchants over two-thirds of the world. By the industry, skill, and enterprise employed in the manufacture of cotton... ...mankind are better clothed, their comfort better promoted... ...general industry more highly stimulated... Commerce more widely extended and civilization more rapidly advanced than in any preceding age and that's the the type of argument that the new historians of capitalism try to make. They'll point to some numbers and they'll say, "Look at how slavery was driving things. But as I say, in just a few moments, we'll look again at that and we'll see there's a sleight of hand involved now, from a methodological point of view, the new historians of, of capitalism when it comes to slavery are just a disaster, uh, and it's just embarrassing to be defending them even implicitly. And of, course, and, of course, the loser brigade that came after me, they don't know anything about this. They never heard of any of these people, and they have no idea that these people have been savagely just taken apart within well, by economists and sometimes even within their own profession. One of the key figures in this subfield is Edward Baptist, and the problem with him is his the thesis of his whole argument has been destroyed because what he was trying to do was calculate the percentage of the antebellum U.S. uh, GDP that derived from slavery. But because he tried to do so without even an elementary knowledge of national income accounting, he wound up double and basically triple counting and coming up with a wildly absurd figure that then other scholars wound up building on to the point where if you follow them to their logical conclusion as uh, – one scholar who actually understands the matter pointed out, you'd wind up with the preposterous view that more than 100 percent of American production is attributable to slavery. These are the people that are being relied upon for this 1619 project. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that's not to say that slavery isn't an important subject. Okay, I absolutely guarantee I have read more about slavery than anybody criticizing me. Absolute guarantee, without a doubt. I know all the different schools of thought. I've read them all. Okay? Read them all years ago. Have have all of them on my shelf. I know all about it. And yes, of course we should know about it. That's different from saying everything you love about America is attributable to slavery. That's not how normal people speak, and it's a bizarre thing to say and it's totally unsupportable and it's it's a it's a crazed obsession of some kind. Like it's a it's almost like a kind of mental illness. That's what we're talking about. We're not, not to say that you can't talk about slavery. Who, who, who's being prevented? In the United States, that's all we talk about. I mean, the idea that suddenly we're going to have a conversation about slavery. Slavery dominates discussions in history courses around the U.S. Absolutely dominant. When I took the Old South at Columbia University, just I sat in and audited it uh, with uh, Barbara Fields. The entire course was slavery. So apparently there was nothing else going on in the South. Nothing at all. It was all slavery, the entire course. This is absolutely typical. It's also worth noting that the greatest propagandists of slavery in the 19th century understood full well that it was the classical liberal laissez-faire people who were their enemies, that this was obvious to them. The idea that they would think that capitalism and slavery work hand in hand is absurd, George Fitzhugh was the, was the most outspoken propagandist for slavery in the 19th century, and he, he said that laissez-faire was a false philosophy of the age, and he said that the ideas of that are at war with all kinds of slavery. He also pointed out that the South relied on the state and would rely on the state for its economic prosperity and development. And he says, it is time for her to avow her change of policy and opinion and to throw Adam Smith, Ricardo, and company in the fire. And yet, Fitzhugh sounds like one of these new historians of uh, capitalism. He sounds like that. Now, of course, the new historians of capitalism are anti-slavery. Fitzhugh is is pro-slavery. But other than that, here's how uh, our friend Phil Magnus describes the similarities. He said – Its representation, that is the new historian of capitalism, its representation of the slave economy largely shares and emphasizes the same features we see emphasized in Fitzhugh. An assertion of the plantation system's economic prowess and dynamism as distinct from classical economic criticisms that saw it as an inefficient and institutionally rigid throwback and a mutual identification of slavery as the primary driving engine of economic industrialization taking place around it and in its wake. All right, now I want to turn to Bob Murphy, who has an article that I'm going to link to. And he elaborates on this also in his book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. I'll I'll link to that as well. And he's reading a Vox interview with Edward Baptist, whom I referred to as being one of these new historians of capitalism. And Bob says, all right, well, now we're really going to hear what is the case for why enslaving people is really a driving force. And there's just no beating that. If you have slaves, no beating that. That's what really makes the world go around. Um, what what are the arguments for this? I mean, it would, doesn't exactly seem intuitive. As I say, if we were to enslave everybody today, you're telling me the economy would would be boosted? Really? You think people being enslaved, not being able to make their own economic decisions or move around or having normal incentives to produce, like that would be a boon for society? Okay, I, mean, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I know it sounds like I'm speaking to these people like they're children. But I think, I don't know, maybe – maybe they are. I mean, maybe their, their uh, ideological preconceptions have done something to the way they think. I don't know. So anyway, the interviewer says, when you talk about the sort of myth-making that has been used to create specific narratives about slavery, one of the things you focus on most is the relationship between slavery and the American economy. What are some of the myths that get told when it comes to understanding how slavery is tied to American capitalism? And Baptist replies, one of the myths is that slavery was not fuel for the growth of the American economy, that it actually put the brakes on U.S. growth. There's a story that claims slavery was less efficient, that wage labor and industrial production wasn't significant for the massive transformation of the U.S. economy that you see between the time of independence and the time of the Civil War. All right, so Bob says, all right, great. Now we're just about to get to it. He's going to give us the argument. Like, How is this possible? Uh, He's claiming that this is an empirical fact. So what's the theoretical basis behind this fact? And it turns out Baptist did not even try to make that case. It's not that he makes a weak case and Bob's unconvinced. He doesn't even try to make the case for why enslaving people actually gets you more efficiency and greater output and more economic growth. He doesn't even try to make the case. And good for him because you can't, okay? Good for him. Um, you know, not following his argument to its logical conclusion and actually sharing with us his his framework. There there can't be such a framework. So Bob says, all right, he does give us some statistics and facts. And he tells us that the output of slave-using plantations increased substantially over time. And that under slavery, the U.S. economy grew relatively to other countries on the world stage. But again, notice that does not answer the question. The question is not If all the slaves suddenly disappeared one day and the U.S. were the same in every other particular except all the slaves disappeared, yeah, production would be less. Duh. Okay, that's – anybody can see that. I don't need to be a new historian of capitalism to see that. The question instead is this. What if you freed all those slaves? Would the economy have grown even faster? Would economic output have grown even faster? If they had been freed, that's the question. And, of course, that one, he doesn't even – it's like he doesn't even know that that's the point. He's so uh, uh, loath to bring it up, it doesn't even get mentioned. And in Bob's Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, he makes the fundamental point, which is that free people have an incentive to produce as much as they can. Does a slave – a slave has an incentive – to do the bare minimum necessary to avoid the most severe punishment. So you think that's going to have a tiny effect on economic output? Not to mention being able to be in charge of your own destiny and acquire human capital and integrate yourself into the division of labor where you best fit and where your talents are most suited so that you can produce as much as possible for your fellow man. None of that's present under slavery. Ludwig von Mises says this, "...the price paid for the purchase of a slave is determined by the net yield expected from his employment, just as the price paid for a cow is determined by the net yield expected from its utilization. The owner of a slave does not pocket a specific revenue. For him, there is no exploitation, in quotation marks, boon, derived from the fact that the slave's work is not remunerated. The point there is that this has already been factored into the price." So there is no exploitation boon that comes from the fact that the slave is not free. That's all the, 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 the present value of the net flows of the labor services of that slave have already been factored into the price of the slave. Then he goes on to say, if one treats men like cattle, one cannot squeeze out of them more than cattle-like performances – But it then becomes significant that man is physically weaker than oxen and horses and that feeding and guarding a slave is, in proportion to the performance to be reaped, more expensive than feeding and guarding cattle. If one asks from an unfree laborer human performances, one must provide him with specifically human inducements. And Mises goes on to point out, as Bob says, that competitive free labor is always going to produce better products than slave labor. A market economy will always outperform a slave economy. And a slave economy cannot compete in a market that values quality goods. We might also wonder why the free north was able to defeat the slave south. Shouldn't the slave south have – and they say, well, the south didn't have industry. Well, but isn't that the point? Why didn't slave labor uh, bring that about? Like, Isn't slave labor what makes the world go round and drive economic growth and make the U.S. into a powerhouse? Then how come it didn't lead to industry in the south? You know, duh, like, why did that not happen? Or how about Brazil? There's no country in the Western Hemisphere that consumed so many millions of slaves as Brazil. Brazil was the last country to abolish slavery in this hemisphere, all the way in 1888. Was it the economic powerhouse? No, of course not. It was still economically underdeveloped. After you got rid of slavery, within two generations— you had greater results in terms of economic progress than you'd had during the entire period of slavery. The modern industrial age began in Western Europe in those countries that had abolished slavery first. This should not be the story if what the new historians of capitalism are telling us is true. But it is the story. Now, finally, let me share with you Bob's analysis of the rising price of slaves. People say, well, what we can see that slavery was an efficient system that was doing great, from the fact that the price of slaves uh, was rising. Bob reminds us that, again, when we're saying slave labor is inefficient, we always mean relative to free labor. We're not saying, again, that if all the slaves went away uh, just overnight, there were no slaves, and all those people vanished, that the economy would boom. What we are saying is that if all those slaves were freed, the economy would do much better. As Bob says, over time... With the discovery of new techniques and the accumulation of more machinery and other capital goods, the productivity of human labor, both free and slave, rose. Improvements in medicine, nutrition, and so on also increased life expectancy rates. Since a slave represented a lifetime reservoir of labor services, it's obviously not surprising that his market value would go up over time given that life expectancy is going up. In fact, from 1820 to 1856, the market price of a, quote, prime, unquote, male slave in New Orleans rose from about $850 to over $1,200. But during the same time frame, nominal daily wage rates for unskilled labor in south-central states rose from about 73 cents to roughly 95 cents. So of the 41% rise in slave prices, at least 30% could be due to the growing productivity of labor in general. But again, the rising price of slaves doesn't mean anything by itself. The question is, is slave labor more efficient than free labor? And to test that, you'd have to compare at the very least the growth in slave prices with the growth in wage rates, and then make an adjustment for increased life expectancy rates, as well as possible changes in interest rates. So ideally, We'd want to compare the profitability of two firms identical in all respects in except one, namely one has slaves and one does not. And even then, if you're looking at statistical analyses gauging the success of slavery, you'd have to factor in the cost of the government regulations that propped up slavery. For example, fugitive slave laws and their enforcement. All right, so that's going to do it for today. Just some thoughts for you to know a little bit about this school. The problems they have because they're – unfortunately, their knowledge of economics ain't so great. There's a big surprise. But also the fact that their arguments sound just like the pro-slavery propaganda arguments of the 19th century, that they rely on a preposterous fundamental claim. That an economy based on enslaved people is going to be an economic powerhouse, but specifically would be more of an economic powerhouse than if you freed those people. And by the way, there's something scary about that because that means the only thing that's keeping us from slavery is our moral revulsion at the system. But if we didn't have that moral revulsion, the economic efficiency of it speaks for itself and we should have it. That's a crazy thing to think. That's a dangerous thing. That's like thinking that war creates prosperity because look at all the buildings we get to build and all the missiles. I mean, this is dumb and scary and shocking. But there it is. Uh, links that will help you are at tomwoods.com 1478. And finally, what would an episode dealing at least tangentially with capitalism be? They're not going to define capitalism, but I will. Uh, it's a system of private property and freedom of contract. And that basically is it. System governed by freedom of contract bounded by private property. And you prosper in that system when you provide affordable goods to the masses. That's basically what it is. So um what would a, an episode dealing with capitalism be without me promoting a free ebook just to go it goes to show you can get free things under capitalism and i guess this time i'll promote uh, if you haven't read it yet you're really really going to benefit from it i did a little ebook where i talked about for example podcasting how to get started all the different tech questions that you need to solve um, how to monetize a podcast, but then also chapters on affiliate marketing and all the sorts of things that successful, a lot of successful people uh, do online. And I've, I've done all these things. So I walk you step-by-step step through what I do. So I got a, um, an ebook on that that I wrote from scratch. There's nothing recycled in there. It's all written from scratch. It's all based on my own experience and all the services I use and the people I've learned from. It's all in there. So you can get that over at pathstoincome.com. And I know you'll find it interesting and helpful. So pathstoincome.com is that website. And I'll see you all tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free. And we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.